Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Uh, good morning, um, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, in the studio today, you have me, Jacob, um, and La Lali. Yes. <laughs> How many years have you been yes, saying my La- name? <laughs> or Lalita or Lali. I just don't know what the preferred kind of... Lalita. Yeah. And um, Sorry. so today we've got a pretty packed... Well, we've got a, pro- a bit of a program today. Um, we have, I think, at least two guests. We have Dick Nichols, who will be um, talking to about the situation that's unfolding on Spain. And then we'll be talking to Aziz Direct from Manus Island, who is a refugee currently held there. Yes. Yeah. Keep going. Um, so, yeah, that's it. Um, before, I guess, we start um, talking about news, um, I'd like to acknowledge that um, FreeCR today is being broadcast to you um, from the Wandry land of the Kula Nation. Um, I'd like to pay our respects um, to elders past and present and that this always was, always will be, um, Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. That's right. Um, I guess there's been quite a lot of... Um, big kind of news stories that have kind of happened in the past week or so. I mean, the first story I like to talk about is, I mean, I'm sure lots of listeners have been hearing what Peter Dutton has been talking about lately. Um, And I think one of the most interesting things about what Peter Dutton is saying is basically he wants to, just to give a bit of a political background, um, in South Africa, um, the government has passed a motion um, where you know, they would basically be able to see, just a bit of a context, in, in South Africa, the majority of land, even post-apartheid, is owned by white farmers, um, despite the fact that apartheid is gone. So there has been a new... You know, uh, a motion was put um, for implement, um, put forward by the government that they um, that that land would be seized without compensation and given to black farmers. I mean, I have some scepticism about how this policy will be implemented, um, simply due to kind of neoliberal kind of nature of the South African government, as we kind of discussed previously in the program. Um, but Peter Dutton has basically jumped onto this story and said that he's going to fast track. Um, those poor white South African farmers and bring them into the country, which is actually also based on a lot of ridiculous presumptions. Um, well, actually, for one, this proves that Peter Dutton is racist. Um, there's no doubt about that he, because, you know, he has no, he ha- has no issue push, um, putting, you know, brown and black ref- um, pe- people of colour um, seeking asylum or freeing persecution, like, you know, these poor white f- um, farmers are uh, in torture detention camps, but, you know, because the... Or even deport them in the middle of the night. Yes. 
That's what he'd done to the Sri Lankan guy. That family they, they grabbed from Brisbane, they took them to Perth and they put the guy on the plane the very no- next evening or something. Hmm. So it ultimately Just. reveals the kind of true kind of nature of what Peter Bannon is. I mean, to a lot of our listeners, this is quite obvious, but I think it's quite clear um, that, you know, the whole detention regime is based on racism. Absolutely. Um, but I think just a one, a few just things I want to mention, though, is um, basically the South African government has sort of acted in confusion in response to this because basically the actual facts are this policy hasn't been implemented yet um, and, B, the, it's also based on kind of almost... What Peter Dutton's knee-jerk reaction, and I read this interesting kind of funny status that made this observation, it's based basically um, based on kind of conspiratorial kind of nonsense that, uh, you know, uh, that basically white farmers in South Africa are being killed at a greater rate than any other people in the world, um, than any other people in South Africa. Where did you get farmers. that stat from? No, that, that's, that's, I'm not, that's a false stat. That's what I'm trying to say. It's mm. a false stat statistic that Peter Dutton seems to be acting in the presumption of, which makes me wonder if Peter Dutton is basing his policies based on what's he, what he reads in far-right media because I think the only media you could probably get that kind of statistic from is from um, that of the far-right. Yes. It's really interesting, isn't it, how um, they keep saying Australia is not racist and yet they ignore to the peril um, everything racist about Australia, from the um, oppression of the Aboriginal community to the current open invite by Dutton to the South African white farmers. I'm sure he wouldn't do that if there were black farmers being evicted of land mm. from their land. You know, it'd be impossible for him to bring himself to do it. Um, why is he doing that? This, 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 this is a, a good question people need to ask. Why is he doing that? Politically, where, that, that shows where he's coming from. Anyway, it's a depressing story as far as I'm concerned. But people need to think about it. There's so many issues around that alone that's enough to make you cry. But anyway. Yeah. Um, kind of next um, story I just want to highlight is um, tomorrow, I mean, actually a lot of people who probably listen, I mean, the station is actually situated in this electorate. Um, tomorrow is actually the Batman by-election. Um, yeah, it's the Batman by-election. Yeah, it is. But I'm wondering if, if Collingwood is part of it. No, it's not. Oh, maybe not. Oh, no, no, it's not. not. Okay, maybe it's not. <laughs> I, I was confused there, but I think not anywhere north of Fitzroy and Car- Collingwood is actually part of that. Clifton Hill election. Up, yeah. Um, just so, yeah, so what, what, what's interesting about this election, um, we're not going to call on a vote for anyone, obviously, for obvious reasons, but what's, I think, interesting about this Batman by-election is it has made the media a lot... I, it does seem to be a, a subject of intense media attention. Right. In fact, I read a long article, you know detailing the kind of internal battles that are happening inside the Greens as a role of Alex Bataille's um, candidacy. I mean, we don't know how true um, some of these claims are or how exaggerated they are. Um, but then you also have the other factor, the fact that the Liberals aren't running in this seat. Mm. Um, so it's actually going to be a contest between Labor and the and Greens. Greens. Yes. However, that does, as um, Campaign Against Racism and Fascism has noted, there's actually at least five far-right candidates um, running in, um, in the Batman by-election, which is interesting, even including Rise Up Australia. 
um, and One Nation. Um, so and there's a conservative party called Sustainable Australia, um, with the facade of the environment slogan, but it's it's a very conservative party according to what people have said. Anyway, yeah. let people decide when they, who they want to vote for. But yeah. the the shenanigans have been going on. There's a hundred page complaint uh, against Alex as well. And, you know, there hasn't been one report on the fact that um, the ALP has basically jettisoned in Jet Carney from the ACTU into this electorate. Um, she doesn't even live in the electorate. She can't even vote for herself. And it's, it certainly lacks credibility in the way they have done that. Mm. Well, um, that, that said, I would, I, I would disagree with the notion of a of critiquing a candidate on the basis that they don't live no, in the No, no, what electorate. I'm saying is the electorate would, would think along those lines. And usually that's one of the criticisms they have of people who stand, mm. come from another place, somewhere else, foreign to that particular area, mm. and claim to know what the people of well, Batman the, want. Well, where, where I would disagree is I think for Jed Carney, um, she lives in Brunswick, which is a pretty close proximity to where the Batman electorate represents. That's just, I say, I'm just thinking if if she lived in, say, you know, the Dangong and she was running in the seat of Batman, then I think that yeah, would be an issue of criticism. Yeah. But in, cool. if they're in so close proximity, I just don't... Anyway, look, it's not an issue. People can decide and I'm not going to argue the point. But let's move on to Tasmania. It's interesting, there's an article in, in Green Left Week, this week's Green Left Weekly about... Um, this major issue that didn't win enough votes for the um, opposition in um, Tasmania. Tasmanians lose more than $100 million in the year on a, $100 million a year on gambling. And um, the elections had decided um, that um, the hair clerk system, by the hair clerk system, a method of proportional voting that means a party must secure close to half the total vote to win majority government. Um, it's a complex system, but the system often um, um, produces close results and minority governments. It also means seats are rarely decided on election night. So on the 3rd, 3rd of March, Tasmanians went to bed knowing that they had re-elected Will Hodgman's Liberal government with 0.76% swing against it. On the night, the Liberal Party had won 50.46% of the total vote and at least 13 out of 25 seats. But the Labour recover, recovered some of the votes it lost in 2014 with a swing of 5.4%, but its vote share of 326 is still its third worst result in the world, since World War II. It won eight seats and has a chance in three uh, three others. But we don't, we don't know. They haven't been finalised anyway. So the system is a bit more complex. So it's interesting because Jackie Lambie also stood and, and um, only managed 3.2%, down from 5 The Biner party vote was down and the combined vote for the majority uh, parties was 83%. So Labour's promised to ban poker machines from the pubs and clubs and restricted them to casinos became a major election issue. The Greens were first to raise this issue. Um, it means that some of the Green votes would have gone back to Labour. So the promise was a challenge 
to the wealthy Farrell family, whose company, the Farrell Group, had held exclusive licensing rights for Pokies in, uh, since 1993. So the fact that $100 million goes to these people's coffers is really interesting, hasn't been um, considered sufficiently enough. But exactly why people vote the way they do um, is deeper analysis, I guess. It's hard to know. Um, it's all over the place. But Hodgman has felt the pressure and, um, you know, he... Um, he was going to look into enacting some uh, transport laws. There was a complaint about transport, of course, and he has responded to that apparently. And the Liberals oppose public hospitals performing surgical abortions or for offering instead to extend travel assistance to women to go to Melbourne for an abortion. And um, the Liberals ran a successful scare campaign focusing on the prospect of huge parliament with Labour and Greens forming government and as they had in, in 10 to 14. So I think that was probably the, the key factor in that campaign. So we'll see what happens because this weekend, there are two elections taking place. One is, as you mentioned, the by-election Batman, but the South Australians are going to the polls as well, aren't they? The South Australians? I think it uh, could be, the. I think the it might be the following weekend. I'm not not no, it's this sure. weekend. Oh, it's this weekend. Mm. I just haven't seen... I actually, in terms of the media coverage, I've probably seen more prominence. I mean, probably because we're in Victoria, but even, you know, on social media, seeing more prominence being given to this Batman by-election kind of on a national level yeah, than, it is, isn't it? than, say, um, than, say, this South Australian um, election. Potentially because there's quite a lot, potentially for the left, there's quite a bit at stake around this Batman by-election because it's could go to the Greens, so that's, um, but um, in South Australia, I guess the main kind of contentious issue um, for politics is uh, this whole nuclear waste dump, um, and then the other issue is sort it's of the rise, um, uh, the rise of the Nick Xenophon party, which is sort of like a centrist kind yeah, of. He went from federal to state politics, but also the issue of renewables. It's been big in South Australia. They've been world leaders with uh, the um, what's that company called? Telsa, not Telsa. Um, Tesla, helping them with the largest battery in the world and so on. So it's interesting to see how people vote and what the issues are that make them decide one way or the other. But <clears throat> remains to be seen. Anyway, <clears throat> excuse me, one more little news and then we go to uh, we'll go to a break. So the firefighters, this dispute's been going on for a long time and occupied the media. And they have um, begun voting in a new enterprise agreement process, which includes pay rise of 19% over four years. So the previous agreement expired in, in uh, 2013. So that discussion has been going. I think they voted, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the impasse continued, and um, the coalition Labour State government resulting in uh, rallies for firefighters. Eventually, the current Labour government changed its approach and had an agreement that was signed in December last year. But the MLB manage, management caused further delays in issuing an explanatory memorandum that gave a, a different meaning to the agreement. So the, the firefighters had a range of questions, such as equipment and uniforms and clauses clearly specifying the rights of workers in relation to issues such as rosters. So they were the issues they, um, they've been fighting over. And safety is obviously a very important issue with the firefighters, given the, the industry. But um, I think they voted on it. They were voting on it, or have voted on it very, very recently. I think the firefighters have won what they wanted.
Well, okay. the, the main, um, the, just the main political issue there is um, about uh, how the mainstream media has basically, you know, jumped on that EBA grin and basically used it as some kind of like war against the, on the firefighters, even basically making these exaggerated claims that firefighters are now entitled to over 90 days of, of leave um, or something and so on. Um, I mean... Yeah, but basically, as a firefighter on social media basically said, there would have to be all these things would have had to have happened to this firefighter, like, you know, some kind of domestic violence, some kind of emer- emergency to be able to use all that all that leave um, all at once. And that's just not humanly possible that it could all that, you know, the, all those tragic events and all those situations could happen to one individual. Mm. Okay, let's take a quick break and go to the interview. And welcome back to Green Life Weekly Radio and Friday Breakfast. So this is our first interview, um, which I did earlier with Dick Nichols, who is the uh, reporter for Green Life Weekly and Lynx magazine. Here we talk about the six million strong strike the women staged in Spain. And it's fascinating stuff. So hold on to your seats. Here we go. Welcome back, uh, Dick, after a long break. And it's a very interesting moment to catch up with the women's strike on uh, International Women's Day. That's right. Nice to be back, uh, Lali. Yes, this was the biggest uh, feminist strike or women's strike, strike for women's rights in history. Biggest action for women's rights in history because we've, we had, there were at least 5 million. That's a conservative es- estimate. 5 uh, million people took Industrial action, mainly main, when I say people, mainly women, but not only women, took uh, industrial action on the day and over six million uh, protested. So there were demonstrations all over Spain, 120 towns, um, and the estimate was the, you know, up to six million on the demonstrations. Uh, and, and the really important, or a really important aspect of that was that these demonstrations were big in towns down to the level of provincial capitals. So you're talking about demonstrations in places of, you know, a town that would be like, you know, Ballarat Hmm. of 15,000 people. Okay, let's start at the beginning. This whole thing was organised by a group called Feminist Coordination. So tell us a bit about this organisation. It wasn't organised from the centre. That was the umbrella group. Yep. Which was uh, like not a you know centralised group which was telling local groups what to do. What you have is uh, women's or feminist collectives of quite varied, of very different politics all over Spain. These collectives picked up on the idea, which came, I think, it came from Argentina originally. Okay. Why don't we do a, a women's strike on Women's Day, International Women's Day? And this really took off here because at the level of these collectives because it posed the idea that you could have a strike, which was not just a strike about conditions of work, which are bad enough for women and have been getting worse and have been affected by permanent casualisation of labour under the crisis, but you could have a strike around uh, care, women were doing caring for the day, a consumer strike, uh, a strike in services, etc. So the final manifesto, which was the one that was produced in the name of this, uh, the group, mm-hmm. which I've got here, which was called the 8M Manifesto. Um, that was the result of a lot of back and forth between all the uh, different local collectives. And so the, 
it wasn't that wasn't organized from the top. Uh, I just wanted to make that clear. And it was also outside the trade union movement because the trade unions <laughs> came in later, didn't they? Or some of them, anyway. It, it was what happened was it started as a proposal from the women's movement, and because in the women's movements you've got the various left groups. Uh, and anarchists, anarchists, syndicalists, and you know various other left organisations. Um, it then passed through those organisations into the minority trade union confederations, which we have here. I mean, in Spain, as in France, the, con- the trade unions are organised both ideologically, like you've got anarcho-syndicalist unions, sure. you've got uh, social democratic union confederation. But also they're organised, as in Australia, according to uh, industry or according to profession. Uh, And what happened was that the the anarcho-syndicalist, two anarcho-syndicalist confederations, plus another confederation which was a split from the workers' commissions, a sort of rank-and-file, a rank-and-file union confederation. That it was a union confederation that split from the workers' uh, commissions because it said they had become too bureaucratic. They took it up. Those three organisations took it up. And then it very rapidly, the idea became brought on in those unions where women predominate mm. uh, and where they've been suffering from the cuts and where they've been carrying the burden of keeping services running, which is health and education. Mm. So, for example, the main health, the main teachers union here in Catalonia, which is called USTEC, the Education Workers Union of Catalonia, um, they immediately took it up. And when they did it, this thing was out of control because then the the big, uh, the big two big confederations, which are the Workers' Commissions and the General Union of Labour, uh, who've got majority coverage <coughs> in most places of Spain, in Spain, uh, they had to react. The original proposal was for a 24-hour strike um, and the Workers' Commissions and the General Union of Labour produced their version of it, which was two two-hour strikes... Mm. One morning shift and one in the afternoon shift. So there's a bit you can imagine there was a big fight about whether this was betrayal or was it really, uh, you know, a better chance of getting people out. So that debate is still ongoing. But there's also another Uh, side to it because uh, in one of the readings I'm doing, I was doing it says that um, the unions were able to make the strike legal. How how you know valid is that? Uh, that's that's right, and that's how I have to explain that. That's because the the minority unions, the two anarcho-syndicalist unions and the uh, COBAS, the rank and file committees, um, because they have status, formal status as unions, uh, under the labour law here, they can proclaim a strike. They can go and register a strike, uh, and the employers can appeal against it, which they always do. But there's a commission which says, no, this is a legal strike, and they give the strike a legal endorsement. Once that's, that's this is very good thing, you know, mm. once that's agreed to, once that's endorsed, then the strike is on. And it's like, well, we've decided there's going to be a strike, so it's going to be proper. That is to mean that once it's been decided there's going to be a strike, uh, you ha- you've legalised picketing, you, everything is legalised, everything to do with a, a strike, not violence, but, you know, everything to do with having a strike and trying to stop people from working on the day, like flying pickets, which is uh, done by the CNT and the CGT, the two anarcho-syndicalist unions, all that is legal. Then what that did was, as as you said, it it meant that the movement could uh, advertise this strike as a strike which was okay to participate in. 
it wasn't a wildcat strike being run by the feminist movement. It was a legal strike, uh, and so everybody could come on board. It was also for the housewives, which is a really interesting aspect that generally is not talked about in the feminist movement. This was a strike for everybody, including women doing housework. And well, they- this is because it, 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 if you read the feminist literature here, and it's, I mean, it's not just here, it's everywhere. They, everywhere, yeah. The whole point about the system relies on unpaid domestic labour. That's labor right, yeah, exactly the point. Like, yes. labor, right? So what this was basically was a feminist strike. That's what they called it. It's yep. called Welga uh, Feminista, yep. a feminist strike, and which was a strike. Women would stop doing the things they do and which keeps the show running yep. for 24 hours, which means, you know, caring, which means, uh, you know, doing the shopping, consumer strike. No shopping, no caring. This was all part of it. Mm. And in the statement, if you read the manifesto, which is in English, uh, it's a sort of shonky translation into English, but you can get the feel for it. Um, It's all explained there. Very powerful on the the wage gap and on the pension gap here. Uh, Women pensioners get around 680 euros on average a month, whereas the male rate is 1,100 or something like that. What? So this means that you, what you've got is this was a strike that involved all generations, mm. but especially young, young people. Mm. That's criminal, Massive. the difference. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay, so I just want to talk about also about the right-wing response to this call for this women's strike. Um, I believe they wanted to um, stop the strike, or at least they thought they could try and stop it. But eventually they had to back off. Even even um, television uh, broadcasters were forced to um, go on strike after the women's strike looked so big. Well, this is one of those moments to cherish, Lali. Yes. And, you know, there, is times, <laughs> there are times in, hu- in human history when the struggle becomes so undeniable and so popular that even the most conservative people have got to flip. And so the, the, the symbol of this... The, the thing that most symbolised this was Mariano Rajoy, the Prime Minister, yep. uh, appearing appearing with his uh, purple um, ribbon oh, on his <laughs> on, on May the second. Oh, I mean, it's, you know that that was the source of so many jokes here. The PP had been saying this is a strike produced done by Podemos. It's a subversive strike. It's a strike uh, which is aimed at. Against the against the government, etc., 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 and because of the accumulation of support, which ended up, as you mentioned, with even conservative women uh, TV interviewers and you know women shock jocks, if such things exist, uh, they they had to come on board. Mm. And students too played so, a very important part. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. The students were the biggest. No. You see, absolute tide of young women, tide, uh, oceanic. Yes, and some... that is, and here, of course, the thing that's probably strongest there is this was against machismo, and the and sexism, um, which is very very strong. I mean, it's very strong, obviously, everywhere, but it's very strong still in Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, young women against machismo and you know domestic violence and being whistled out in the street and all oh, this yeah. sort of crap. Mm. Um, that was very, very a detonator for them. Yeah, sounds good. And also, you know, this Barcelona Daily article also actually called it more than a strike, almost a revolution. That spirit, I believe, that uh, whole movement created. 
<laughs> well, now, well, that's right. I mean, now what happens is, well, what are you going to do? Uh, and it's, it, it's been very good for Podemos because Podemos is the party that's, and it's, and it's sort of connected organisations. It's the party that is closest to this. Yeah. And which, which expresses it and which involved most involved in it and which got the tone of it right. I mean, the, uh, Irene Montoro, his, who is their parliamentary spokesperson in Madrid, is a young woman of 28, 29, and she's just part of this. And so when this come, Podemos is very much uh, identified with it, mm. um, not that a lot of people don't disagree with Podemos on all sorts of things, but in, in at the at the level of parliamentary representation, Podemos is close to it. Um, so what comes up now is, well, what are you going to do? And, of course, Podemos has got a whole series of proposals on eliminating the wage gap to start off with, eliminating the pension gap, which is the most imp- two most important things in the of immediate course. sense. Mm. Uh, and we've actually, they've got a very good uh, precedent which they can look to and popularise, which is in the new Icelandic government, uh, has just... Out banned having a wage gap. <laughs> yes. Like when the Cubans banned racism. No, you cannot, and they ban it, and the, the Labor inspectorate will go around and check that everything's being paid correctly, mm. which is the only way you can eliminate the wage gap. That's right. Simple. The, the, the only way you eliminate it is you say, well, society doesn't want it, and society's going to police it, and the, the instrument we're going to have to police is the Labor inspectorate, uh, and that's what, that way you'll get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And not hard, so not hard at all. Not, not uh, easy to understand. Yes. And it, it's a tremendously important thing because it's an example of what we mean by, you know, it's a sort of socialist example, if you like. I mean, it doesn't matter what you call it, but yeah. it is. You, you know, the natural tendency is for, uh, you know, capitalist production, reproduction to produce inequality. If we want to have equality, society has to stand up and say, we want equality and it has to have the instruments to do it. And here's a perfect example. Hmm. I want to go back uh, uh, just for a minute. Um, I know in uh, Iceland's a great example, but that comes on the back of also the fact that they elected, a, I think, a 41 or 42-year-old young woman as their president. Um, so that's that's... Iceland has its own history. It's a fantastic history, and another time we can talk more about that. But this this strike that happened also had a uh, another phenomenon in it. I wanted you to to tell us a little bit more about it. the class, very class nature of this uh, strike, because the the bosses or the ruling class had tried very hard and threatened to um, respond to the pickets with the lockout and so on. But the the yeah. the emphasis by this strike was very much a class divide. It, it's well, you know, it, it, it's because it was so, that, you know, one element, the sort of core element of this was uh, the female wage gap and extra exploitation of women and particularly ex- exploitation of migrant women in casual labour in like the hotel or tourism and, mm. and tourism industry. Mm. Um, and because you've had organisation here of a, a, a sort of women's association, a association of women workers in the hotels and in the tourism industry called the Kellys, that's, that's what it's called in, called in Spanish, uh, this it was a really important part of it. So it was basically, it was, a, you know, the, the class question comes through, uh, not talking about class as such, but talking about women's wage rates. Yes. Uh, 
and exp extra exploitation of women. And all uh, especially women. It's all by women. So it That's contains right. all the big themes. Yeah. That have been there in the background in um, under you know the, since the economic crisis, the intensification of uh, of exploitation and the labor under the labor various labor reforms we've had here, all these big themes which were sort of talked about by the trade unions, uh, but here that you can actually dramatise it and speak to it mm. because it went through the specific prism of you know, extra exploitation of female labour. Mm. Mm. Uh, and so that was very, very powerful. Yes. Um, and they tried to say, sorry, just saying one thing. The, the, okay. At one stage, the, the reactionaries and the shock jocks tried to say, oh, well, this is just a, a, snob, a, a strike of snobs. It's a, a strike of, you know, professional women who are well paid who, and who want, it's, it's a glass ceiling strike. Basically, it's a strike to get rid of the glass ceiling. That's mm. what it is. Mm. Uh, so we can have, you know, more female bosses and female professionals in top, in top paying jobs. Uh, and that fell in it. That as soon as they said that, it was like a, a, an insult, which helped build the strike because it put it was absolutely the wrong thing to say. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and it got everybody extremely angry. So yeah. everybody, went, more and more people went out. In fact, um, I'm just reading this article here where it says um, in Barcelona, several people held um, placards saying that it feels like 1917. Of course, referring to the, the Russian Revolution. Well, it, it, that's the headline you quote there was the headline from El Periodico on the day after. El Periodico is the equivalent of uh, the Herald Sun. Oh, wow. In, <laughs> in, in, in Melbourne, you know, uh, or the Daily Telegraph in Sydney. So it was, it, they had to say, the headline was, more than a strike, almost a revolution. Yep. And which was actually accurate. Yep. Uh, and so it's very noticeable. Everybody's the mood in the place and the mood amongst uh, women, I mean, because everybody still is talking about it, mm. is we showed them. We didn't we show them. That's the mood. Yep. And so, so the aftermath of the strike is going to be interesting because so many millions <coughs> of people have, or women having marched and raising the consciousness, consciousness about a variety of things from wages to machismo and, and, you know, domestic violence, wages, all that stuff. So it, it's taken the, the struggle in Spain overall that was already happening with the Catalan-Madrid uh, divide to a, to a new level, don't you think? Well, it, it, yes, I think the way to, to look at it, certainly, that's certainly true. But And the, what it does in immediate terms is it puts an enormous problem, extra problem, uh, on the plate of the Spanish government. Mm. Uh, and what are they going to do about this? Uh, they've already got a big problem with the budget. Yes. Uh, the budget, they're a minority government. The Basque Nationalist Party has said, we will not support this budget until you get out of Catalonia, that you, you lift the Article 155 intervention, which is the, you know, oh, yes. the take of yeah. Catalan, uh, the Catalan regional government yep. uh, from Madrid. Don't even ask us. And, of course, they've got to do that um, because if the Basque Nationalist Party government, which is right-wing conservative Basque Nationalist, if they don't do that, then they will yield, concede ground to the Basque left nationalist forces. Um, so there's no way that's going to change. So so what what is Rajoy going to do? Hmm, big uh, question. A, this, is a, this intensifies the crisis, even though the, 
women's strike doesn't have anything to do in the immediate sense with the national question in Catalonia and the rest of the Spanish state. Because all politics goes through Madrid, it complicates immensely an already complicated uh, situation and radicalises the situation for in, in, in the Spanish parliament and in, in politics in, in the Spanish parliament. Uh, then you have, on top of that, which we haven't talked about, uh, we've had pensioner strikes here. Yes, you, you mentioned that, yes. These were, these were also not organised by the unions. They were organised along the lines of 15M by platforms. So a pensioner's platform, which is simply a thing that calls itself the platform to defend uh, the state, the public pension. And so we get demonstrations of 45,000 pensioners in Bilbao. And this uh, is basically because the pension is is a misery. It's also because what you have in Spain is everybody, you know, people from other countries discover that Spain is a beautiful place to live. They've got more money. They come in, they buy up real estate, uh, up go the prices of upco rents in the traditional centres of the traditional cities like Barcelona and the people who've lived here forever or if it's their city can't afford rents anymore and suddenly you have whole blocks of uh, flats that are bought up by uh, vulture funds or um, by investment funds and they just turf everybody out and then they spiffy up these uh, blocks of flats and then they charge a huge rent that nobody here can afford or only rich people here can afford. Mm. And the pension is still the same. So you, you can. this is all feeding into an increasing uh, crisis of life is unviable, life is unlivable. That's so right. the pension, just listen to the pensioners, ex- the anger is extreme because, you know, people worked for 40... Here it's a contributory pension scheme. I should add, we should add, explain that. Um what you get at the as a pension depends on how many years you've uh, years you've paid into the fund. Oh. So it's like, it's more like super, right? Australian from superannuation. There is no you know pension paid out of the normal tax system. Hmm. Uh, and that way, so you get people who've done thirty five years or forty five years, uh, and they've contributed. They've done everything that they've had to do, and they can't live on it. And so this all—it all feeds into a, a, as I say, a gathering crisis of, of government, and it makes it possible, more and more possible for the first time. Hopefully, the left will be able to do this, to link up the question of national rights, the right of self-determination, mm. and the denial of the right of self-determination. The same bastards who are doing that are the same bastards who are. Cutting your pension, they're the same people who are keeping women in a state of, you know, yes. the state they're in, mm. and it's all the same people. Yes. So don't let yourself, don't get, don't get bamboozled by all this talk about the problem is the Catalans. Mm. Problem is the Catalans. Yeah. So that's that, that's very important. Here. So it's interesting that finally in in Spain something such a of enormous significance happening uh, because of this this very nature of linking all of the issues and pointing the finger directly at capitalism as a system. That's what's happening. And that's refreshing to see because it's so nice to hear the counter uh, measures that are happening in, in Spain. And the people are getting really angry. Here, too, there's a lot of um, anger. But what are people going to do? Yeah. And here, the good thing here is that the, the general sentiment in Spain, especially in Catalonia, is left. Mm. 
Mm. So there's no the, the, the dreadful bloody right wing uh, racism, xenophobia you get in other European countries. Yes. Um, Anti refugees. Uh, that just doesn't exist. Here it takes the form of, oh, it's the bloody Catalans or it's the Basques or it's the Castilians. That's the sort of racism. Is in, It's an internal racism here. Mm. Uh, and they use that very much here to try and split the Catalan-speaking community or the community that comes from within Catalonia, from the community that comes from other parts of Spain and try and get them to feel that each the other is the enemy. You know, this rise of the struggle around women's rights and and around their pensions helps that. Yep. Helps on condition that, you know, there's a, a left parties are capable uh, of drawing the the the, uh, the lessons. Yes, it galvanizes the spirit of the people who want to fight back. Also, it, it, it eliminates a space uh, from which the, uh, the right wing or fascist groups can recruit from. So that's what this, this, this revolution or, or strike by women and, and this pensioners do now uh, seems to be doing. Wouldn't you agree? We're fed up with this system. The, the way it's being posed here is a good little phrase here which I'll just try and find and translate, which is the channel for the alternative, yes. the nature of the alternative that we're all looking for is essentially a feminist alternative. Yep. So that feminism isn't you know one more thing we're fighting for. We're fighting for women's rights. We're fighting against racism. We're fighting for uh, workers' rights, et cetera, et cetera. A global feminist understanding, that is, that we will all gain all male and females everybody will gain by the struggle for women's equality absolutely that's, right hmm. that's the key understanding yep. and if we do that we will be transforming society yes so that the struggle around the demands um that have arisen out of all the women's struggles all pr- brought together uh, you know against domestic violence everything um is a struggle that helps the whole of working people and the whole of, uh, you know, society against the elites. Absolutely. Okay, thank you, Dick, for being available to 3CR for this great interview. My pleasure, Lali. And uh, welcome to, back to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, and Jacob and Alita at their home this morning. Um, in the interview that I did actually early last night, um, you, you would have heard a, a, a mild sound of of hammering in the background. Um, my apologies for that, um, listeners, but um, there was renovations going on next door to where Dick stays, and uh, that's the sound you kept hearing. I hope it didn't distract you too much from um, the interview itself. Okay, next. All right, I'll quickly um, just play a quick announcement, and um, I've got a good kind of news article that I want to discuss sure. that fits really well with um, what um, that interview was. <laughs> Marxism 18 is Australia's biggest radical left-wing conference, happening March 29th to April 1st in Melbourne. The conference will feature founding editor of Jacobin magazine, Bhaskar Sunkara, Australian writer Helen Razor, Palestinian activist Huwaida Araf, and films celebrating 50 years since the struggles of 1968. Join radicals and activists for political discussion in over 100 sessions across four days. Tickets start at $25 
and are available at marxismconference.org. Red Flag Press is a 3CR supporter. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. It is 747am on the 855am <laughs> dial. That's an that's aeroplane, a 747. <laughs> yeah, seven, yeah, it's 747 AM. <laughs> um, just to be and precise. it's cold outside. It was like 14 degrees when I came in. Oh, it's that bad. I'm quite used to the cold weather. Um, this, this is a news article I just want to discuss. It's about um, a bit of analysis. Um, listeners probably heard about the big kind of teacher strike that happened in West Virginia. Um, which was, you in know, the US. in the US, as it was, um, as written here, was organised from the bottom up um, by rank and file teachers, seventy-five percent, you know, women. And one of the lessons of this whole struggle is it demonstrates um, the truth of what worker militant and songwriter John Joe Hill wrote: um, "There's power in a band of working people when they stand hand in hand." Um, and a bit of a kind of background and political context for this strike um, where they ended up winning a 5% pay raise and that applies to all um, state employees. Um, the strike occurred against the background of, you know, a very weak US labour movement. Um, it has, you know, very, you know, conservative and class collaborationist um, bureaucracy and, of course, they're mainly interested in lining up their own product um, pockets. Um, and as such, you know, this, this kind of strike, you know, the struggle serves as an important lesson for all working people on the way forward. Um, and of course, there was a lot of obstacles here, and some of these obstacles are actually quite similar to the obstacles that um, even workers and teachers face um, in Australia. Um, you know, um, though they're probably worse, in West Virginia, for example, public workers cannot legally strike, um, facing being fired if they do. Um, they are barred by law from collective bargaining. Um, the state affiliates of the two national teachers' unions, the National Educational Association and the American Federation of Teachers, being barred from collective bargaining. All these unions can do is basically take up um, individual teachers' grievances. Um, and so, you know, they... When the teachers went on this kind of mass strike in West Virginia, um, they were taking, you know, a lot of risk. And But, of course, as one said in response to this question, um, if they fire me, you know, I'll just get a job at Target with better pay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> um, and another context is West Virginia ranks near the bottom in teachers' pay, um, the 47th out of, of the 50 states. And, of course... Um, I think you probably, um, if anyone has watched a, a movie about teachers in America, I mean, I've seen several because I had to watch, I watch a few of my teachers' education. Um, there are many that are forced to take on second jobs to make ends meet. Mm. Um, and another issue, you know, was be behind the strike was plans by the state um, Republican leaders to pass on health care costs to the workers. And I think well, one of the more interesting things about this um, whole political struggle is the strike was actually kind of started um, or, well, partially started by, um, by, this, um, by this couple who, um, and um, basically Katie 
Edicott, who became kind of like a sort of one of the leaders of this particular struggle. Um, and her husband, um, a fellow teacher, learned about the proposed attack on teachers' health insurance at a small rally in the state capital, Charleston, in January. Um, to let others know, he made a Facebook um, video that went viral. And of course, Edicott and um, began to get many calls from outraged fellow teachers when she and her husband called a meeting response, hundreds showed. And of course, basically, you know, on what happened was. Um, you know, they started to reach out to all the bus drivers, office workers, teachers and cooks in the, con- in the county, um, which is the particular state. Um, the teachers reached out to all the school employees. They discussed what they could do and came to a kind of conclusion uh, to begin with a one-day strike on February the 2nd. Um, of course, the teachers then later broadened their focus to include all public um, workers in the state. If we had the courage to step out, I knew other counties um, would follow us too, that we wouldn't be alone. Edicott said... Teachers and other workers in other counties began to hold their own meetings. And soon, um, teachers in all 55 counties in the state had voted um, in mass meetings for a strike. This forced teachers out of the, the teachers' union to call a statewide mass meeting, which set February 22nd and 23rd as work stoppages. Um, but of course, the rank and file wanted more. Um, everyone's saying if they, if we go out, if we're going out for two days, we're not coming back until it is finished. Um, so the, you know, the strike continued with, you know, rallies, demonstrations and mass decision making. And of course, up to, you know, up about 5,000 teachers and other public support or workers staged occupation of the state capitol building. And there was wide public support for the struggle. And of course, now under, as a result, you know, telling a bit of the story here, under growing pressure, the West Virginia's Republican um, Governor Jim Justice told union um, representatives on February 28th that he supported a 5% pay raise. Um, the union leaders told the teachers to go back to work. But the rank-and-file reaction was anger. Um, they said that promises and handshakes in the capital were not good enough. Um, and, you just, and they, you know, they basically said around March 8th that, you know, no matter what union leaders said, they were staying out until they had what they wanted and in writing. And of course, at that point, um, the ranks um, took charge and the union leaders follow. Um, promises from the governor were notwithstanding, the Republican-controlled state legislature had to approve a pay raise. Finally, reluctantly and facing the threat of the continuing strike, they agreed to the 5% pay raise, which convinced the ranks to end the strike. Um, but of course, this 5% pay raise was not only for teachers, but all public employees. This was a big um, victory, um, but the raise still leaves um, West Virginia teachers among the worst paid in the country. Um, so, yeah, that's um, basically, um, and you know, what some of the lessons here that, you know, um, you know, is the importance of, you know, workers, you know, this is, you know, quite a significant victory um, for the teachers in West Virginia. And, you know, what, some of the lessons that can be learned here is, you know, the importance of workers' democracy and mobilising workers' power, you know, the importance of championing the interests of other workers. And, of course, in the kind of concluding um, point that this um, article I'm reading from, you know, writes is that, you know, the US labour movement needs to be rebuilt on a class struggle basis. This cannot um, be done from the corrupt... Um, Union um, tops, it would only come from the bottom up through the kinds of rank-and-file organising carried out by the rank West Virginia teachers with democratic decision-making that place for reliance on the strength of the workers themselves. The, this rebuilding will take time. There will be victories and defeats in the course of many struggles. The anti-worker 
offensive carried out for decades by the ruling capitalist class and its two parties will impel new battles. Um, in these struggles, new leaders will emerge, as in West Virginia, and either the old unions will be transformed or new ones built. Both um, developments took place in the in the U.S.'s great labour upsurge in the 1930s. Um, so, yeah, that's um, basically, yeah, so that's... Um, that's um, that's the conclusion of oh, you know, uh, kind of the kind of exciting lessons that um, and the inspirational kind of story behind the the West Virginia's um, teacher strike. Um, so I'm just going to go play a quick announcement, and we'll go on to another news story. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil, and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali, and Plumwood. So tune in to 3CR Community Radio 8.55 on your AM dial on Thursday afternoon from 3.30 until 4 o'clock. And let's get radical about philosophy. Right, you're listening to Green Left um, Weekly Radio. Um, I guess the next kind of article um, I want to discuss is, you know, basically just read out a bit um, about this statement and uh, to bring to the attention to about, you know, we did a, uh, been doing a few interviews about this and hopefully many have been seeing what's happening on social media. Uh, but, you know, you know, Afrin, uh, we're talking about Afrin, a city within the cartoon of Rojava in, Rojava in northern Syria. Um has been under siege by the Turkish military, supported by right-wing jihadist forces, including Al-Qaeda, Al-Nusra, and the remnants of ISIS. Um, you know, 50, more than 50, it's been at least 50 to over 50 days after the invasion begin has begun, and, you know, more than 290 civilians have been killed. Um, despite a United States Security Council resolution for a ceasefire across Syria, Turkish air bombardments have intensified and troops are within the site of the city centre. In fact, this is happening, you know, kind of as we kind of speak now. Um, and the, the city may be overrun, you know, by any moment, leading to a massacre of in- innocent civilians, many of them refugees from other parts of Syria. So, you know... The kind of basic kind of summary of here is, you know, we need to stand Afwan, we need to, you know, we need to call on, um, you know, the Australian government to actually do something. Um, we need could, to do more than call. I think we should have a strike like in Spain. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know. <laughs> well, all well, human rights issues. Yeah, but fortunately we can't even get workers to go and strike around basic pay raises. It's, so, so it's that's... a wish. It's a wish, Jacob. <laughs> anyway, you finished with that one? Oh, I just wanted to kind of read up um, yeah. that, you know, there have been... Um, in response to, in solidarity with um, with what's happening in Afrin against, you know, Turkey's ag- aggression, there have been, you know, protests have been taking place across the world over the past weeks, um, including in Australia. In fact, there will be a protest um, at 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. today mm-hmm. Um, at the U.S. Consulate Assembly. That's um, constitute uh, constituent constituent. Um, it's a hard word to pronounce. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's um, it's somewhere in St Kilda. Yeah, yeah the, the embassy is there supposedly. Yeah, oh, that's where you embassy, search. Yeah. Just search United States uh, embassy. embassy, and you yeah, should be yeah, able to find yeah. the location. But there, they'll be happening at ten a.m. So I'll be probably after this program is over, I'll be going straight there. Okay. Um, so yeah, basically, what we're some of the demands is that you know they 
is the Kurds are calling for, you know, implementation of a no-fly zone over the Afrin region, you know, inviting the international community to help enforce it with peacekeeping troops or observer delegations, and for the international community to ensure the delivery of a humanitarian and medical aid to civilians who are in desperate need, both in Afrin and in Gaulta. And, of course, the world cannot um, stand by and allow this invasion to cede. Um, the progressive forces of Rojava have been abandoned by the same Western powers that relied on their military support to defeat ISIS and Raqqa. It is a familiar story. Now it is up um, to the international community, the left and progressive forces to act. And, of course, you know, the Australian government has been silent in the face of the terror, been unleashed by the Turkish state. And, of course, you know, um, They're too busy watching the white, white farmers in South Africa, Jacob. Yes. <laughs> but, of course, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and Foreign Minister Julia Bishop must act immediately and condemn Turkey's invasion of northern Syria. So that's, um, that's the ending reading statement. Okay. So I just wanted to bring uh, another issue to the forefront. It's about journalists who say Facebook is complicit in Israeli crimes. And there's a brief article in the latest uh, GLW. Dozens of Palestinian journalists apparently have been protesting against the social media, um, giant Facebook, of course. On the 5th of March, they were criticizing his routine blocking of accounts from Middle Eastern countries. The um, media workers gathered outside the UN office in Gaza, in Gaza City, which um, banners, whose banners read that Facebook is complicit with Israeli crimes and Facebook favors Israeli occupation. And apparently the protest was organized by the Palestinian NGO Journalist Support Committee. Hamas spokesperson Salama Maruf accused Facebook of restricting about 200 accounts from Palestine last year. And Maruf said that social media companies carry out blocks of phony pre- uh, pretexts. Um, she added that the large uh, portion of Israeli Facebook accounts openly incite violence against Palestinians. And in December, the... Um, it was reported that Facebook had been working with Israeli government officials to suppress Palestinian voices on social media through censorship, removal or blocking of um, content deemed critical of Israel. Uh, and these posts are branded as incitement, whereas the other, the, other, um, the reverse is not, not accepted as incitement. So two years ago, Facebook signed an agreement with the Israeli justice minister to monitor accounts on Palestinian accounts. Um, and the Al Jazeera has reported that in response to several Palestinian journalists had activists have created Sada Social to re, uh, record violations against Palestinian content on the um, social network. So this is how insidiously uh, the right wing works from um, and from the you know under the blanket, if you like, to um, promote vicious um, right-wing views while suppressing any workers' views or people's views on um, against oppression. Okay, you want to play an announcement, Jacob, if you go on to the announcements? I can't. Yep. Uh, I just want to warn uh, work, uh, um, listeners that we've been wanting to, we had made contact with a refugee on um, Manus Island and I am at the moment trying to get in touch with him Um it it may not happen, but I'm hoping that he he said he's he'll be available to talk. Um, at the moment, I'm having trouble getting through, so um, let's hope it happens. But let's have a break and go on to announcements while waiting for you to connect. <laughs> Thank you. 
You're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. It is that time um, of the program where we go into the activist calendar. Um, so, as I mentioned um, th- today, um, tonight, um, or today, this afternoon, um, at 4.30, there will be um, a protest. Um, I think I need to get the exact location, but if you call, it's called, being called by Refugee Action Collective to stop the de- deportation. I think it's outside... Um, the Department of Immigration, but I need to to confirm that. But um, just um, check the Refugee Action Collective um, Facebook page to find out the exact details of when um, when the events going to take place. But it's definitely going to be at four thirty, and it's against deportation of the Tamil family. Um, the next um, thing that's happening is on is on Sunday. Um, the Political Sign will be having its final show on at the Brunswick Green. Um, and, of course, and um, they'll be at the Brunswick Green at 5.30, um, at, at on, which is at Sydney Road, um, Brunswick Green, Sydney Road in Brunswick. Um, there'll be a forum on Tuesday, the March 20th, um, Wobblies of the World, Lessons from the Struggles of the Past, um, featuring Verdi Bergman and Paulia De Angelis, um, and of course, um, this will be happening at seven pm Tuesday, the March twentieth, at um, at the New International Bookshop in Trades Hall, corner of Ligon and Victoria Street. Um, next Wednesday, on twenty first of March, there will be a protest to stop the Liberals' two billion um, dollar education cuts. Um, they'll be happening at two pm at the State Library at Swanson Street in the city. Um, there'll be a forum, Stop Westgate's Tunnel Region, and this will be a public meeting to provide information on the Westgate Tunnel Project to the inner Melbourne city community, local communities to support the people of the more affected western suburbs in their campaign against it, to develop campaign strategies and to advocate for more and better public transport infrastructure and services. And speakers include western suburbs, activists, academics and Moreland councillors, and they'll be happening at 7pm at the Brunswick um, Town Hall, and it's and- organised by Moreland Community for Action on Transport. Sorry, I was trying to get your attention there. Um, the next announcement's about Palm Sunday, of course. That's on, on the 25th of March, Sunday. And um, it's a walk for justice for refugees. It's at 2 p.m. at the State Library. And it's in conjunction with that um, march that I was trying to get hold of um, Someone from the Manus refugee camp, and I haven't been able to get through. So apologies, um, listeners. I'll, be, I'll try again uh, later on. There's also a film screening, Stop Adani, A Mighty Force, at 4 p.m. on one, at one Ferrars Place in South Melbourne. And um, sorry about that. On the 26th of March, which is a Monday. Film screening, Stop Adani, A Mighty Force, at 154 High Street, Ashburton. Hmm. And that starts at 7 p.m. And Thursday, 29th of March, Job Agency Fight Back Information Session. And that's organized by the Unemployed Workers Union. It's at Trades Hall, corner of Ligon and Victoria's Straits. On the same day, it's a public meeting, building grassroots organization from below in the process of change. Speakers are Pacha Guzman from Venezuela, um, from the Bolivar and uh, Zamora Revolution, current in Venezuela. 7 p.m. at the Edinburgh Gardens Community Hall, Fitzroy. It's organized by LESNET, which is a Latin American um, group. 
on the 30th of March, which is a Friday, to the um, 8th of April, there is um, Radioactive Exposure Tour, a journey through Australia's nuclear landscapes. The tour has exposed thousands of people to the realities of radioactive racism and the environmental and social impact of uranium mining, radioactive waste and nuclear bomb testing. The tour is run by Friends of the Earth. Participants are able to join in um, in Melbourne or Adelaide. And if you'd like to register um, your interest, take, uh, you can uh, go to two, 2018 Radioactive Exposure Tour and you complete the form and follow the prompts, of course. So 31st of March, um, the 31st to the 22nd, of April, 31st March to the 22nd of April, there's comedy, Rod Quantock, Happy Birthday to Me, A Walk Down Memory Hallway, Rod Remembers It When It Was Elaine, with the Foundation Member of Contemporary Australian Comedy, from his first routine in the Melbourne University Architects Revenue to his musings on contemporary events. Australia's most seriously funny comedian, Rod, will reflect on the things that have been made that has made him and you laugh for the last five decades and set a course for the next whatever number of decades. So it's the Arts Centre. So you just go to the website and, and book uh, a ticket. Wednesday, 4th of April, there's a book, lo- book launch, Red North. This is a new edition of a long out-of-print classic study of the how the Communist Party built a strong base of support in North Queensland in the 1930s. Speakers include Carmel Shute from the Communist Party, Jim McElroy, Green Left Weekly journalist, and old-time lefty from many, many years ago, 60s, 70s, has been active um, in the left. Entry is by donation, and uh, meals start at uh, 6 p.m. The is in the Blue Room, Level 1, Multicultural Hub, 506 Elizabeth Street, actually on the corner of Victoria Street and uh, Elizabeth Street, mm. and it's right opposite the Vic Market. It's hosted by Green Left Weekly. So that's uh, 4th of April. It's at 6 p.m., 6 to 8, 6.30, there's a meal. And uh, Friday, 6th of April to 8th of April, there's comedy. First Dog on Moon. Joins potentially life-saving one-dog light performance with self-proclaimed national treasure first dog on the moon. First dog will prepare you for the looming collapse of civilization and the demise of everything you ever cared cared about. It'll um, will it still be okay to walk around in your underpants when Armageddon arrives? Do you know where your tactical spork is? What can you do with a radioactive cat? First dog will answer all these questions, so you can go um, look look it up on the internet again. So if you if you Google um, first dog on the moon, you'll get through to it, and you can make your bookings there. Uh, you want to do the next one, um, Jacob? From Friday, April the sixth, there's a concert, high tension. Um, the Indonesian families who are implicated in anti-communist purge. Uh, even now, the systemic silence has stopped people from sharing the stories and spreading truth surrounding that area. They describe um, the daily storytelling as from the ghost to ghost. And uh, it it feels like that it was um, what they've been trying to attempt for the past decade. 
It's at the Gossamer Hotel. Goss, no, Gasometer, I beg your pardon. Gasometer Hotel, 484 Smith Street, Collingwood. April 8th, film screening, Stop Adani, the same film I mentioned before, A Mighty Force. At 4 p.m., uh, Faraz Place, South Melbourne. And it, you can also access it on Facebook. Hmm. And I'll do the last announcement. There's yep. going to be a public forum on Tuesday, the April the 17th, on basically what the Australian Greens should be about. It's going to feature a range of speakers from the Greens, um, some academics, um, and they'll be at 7pm at the New International Bookshop on Tuesday, April the 17th. Yep. I guess just a quick kind of new thing I want to talk about, um, which will lead into this um, other thing we're going to be talking about for the rest of the program, is um, probably listeners heard that um, Stephen Hawking actually passed away on on Wednesday, which was quite a big news story. But I guess one thing I kind of want to emphasise and this is in the latest Green Left Weekly, is that, you know, Stephen Hawking actually had, he's more than just a scientist and a great scientific communicator. He was actually, you know, had quite good politics and took really good positions on a lot of things. For example, um, there was this, I remember this happened years ago. He once refused um, to speak at an Israeli academic conference um, and, you know, some people, actually people made assumptions like um, that, oh, yes, it was, you know, it was because he was ill or something or was sick. That's why he couldn't come to Israel. But, no, he made it clear um, and clarified that it was um, purely um, to a po- um, as a in as a protest of opposition to what Israel is doing to Palestine. So, essentially, he was supporting um, the cause for the BDS um, BDS by not participating in this academic conference. So, that's what that was quite positive. He was also um, an... And um, he was also anti-war, opposed the Iraqi war. Um, and, and the third thing is, and this is also has another funny story to it, there was this one, um, one of the funny, this, this is a funny story by a Republican. Um, a Republican basically tried to make this argument um, in support of privatised healthcare that Stephen Hawking wouldn't have survived if, if we had Obamacare. Oh. Not with saying the fact that actually Stephen Hawking's not actually American. He might have an American voice <laughs> but he's actually british and in fact the only reason that stephen hawking was alive t- is alive today is because the national health NHS, system NHS, in NHS, yes. nhs in uh Britain, well yeah. what what not the reason why he's alive today the reason why he lived as long as he did despite his condition is because of the national health um, system and he was a staunch defender of the na- national you health know, system one thing that people forget is major researches usually take place within the public sector you know, the private sector will take up research that benefits them financially in the in the near future, but the um, NHS and other public institutions do major research that um, focuses on benefit for the people, and that's a fundamental difference between the research is done in these areas. I just find this appalling, this sort of view. But anyway, do you have anything to say? Anything else to say on Stephen Hawking? I have my my take on it because being. Um, Indian, I guess, I always think, you know, Ramanujam also, uh, who's a famous mathematician, wrote about the black hole um, many, well, last century, really. Um, And uh, I heard of other scientists who also um, do a lot of work in the area. But the difference between them and Stephen Hawking, I guess, is that he popularized science. And as, as you were saying before, Jacob, you know, made it accessible. And his book was uh, the the top um of the like, you know, top of the charts for books, basically for three hundred and sixty-nine weeks, which is what? F- how many weeks? How many years? Like five, six mm. years? That um, almost six years. 
one to three, yeah, almost five years. So that shows the impact of the man, I guess, and, and it's a great loss. It's, I saw a cartoon that's saying the IQ of the world has dropped by many, many percentages since he died. And funny as it may be, it's a sad occasion when we've lost a very talented uh, man, uh, a, a, certainly a survivor. Anyway, um, I just want to touch on this um, article in, in the latest uh, Green Left Weekly about um, England and Phil Hurst writes England, Britain. Um, and he, he talks about Corbyn, uh, the youth austerity and the Corbyn challenge. And in the middle of, uh, sorry, um, the, the, there's been a saga which is described as grotesque. Um, uh, outside of Britain's general election last June, um, Premier May called in called it three years ahead of schedule, expecting substantial labour losses and a major increase in Conservative parliamentary majority. But the opinion polls were spect- spectacularly wrong. Elections night revealed a substantial 9.6 swing to Labour, based largely on votes of youth students who rallied behind Labour's most left-wing leader ever, the veteran of socialist uh, MP Jeremy Corbyn. So the Conservative Party was dramatically denied a majority, um, and the result was also a substantial blow to the centrist Liberal Democrats, reduced to a mere 12 MPs, and uh, extreme right UK party, the UKIP, which lost its only MP. So the election results weakened uh, May's authority in the Conservative Party and her ability to control her rebellious uh, nationalistic right wing and the demand, uh, and the demand for a harder Brexit. So the Brexit trend is led from within the cabinet by Foreign Minister Boris Johnson and Environment Secretary Michael Cove. So it was not only the Tories whose internal conflicts were reshaped by the election result, a substantial number of the right-wing Labour MPs hardly concealed their hope that Coburn would suffer an electrical debacle and should thus be replaced by someone well in to his right. But hopes of the early end to left-wing leadership of Labour was dashed by the far sh- stronger than expected results. So it's interesting that um, the left-wing, in the form of uh, Corbyn leadership of the Labour Party, has gone from strength to strength. So surveys show that more than 60% of people under the age of 25 had voted Labour. Um, and the and the results show that Labour had achieved more remarkable results where there were large numbers of students. With Corbyn at the home, Labour Party membership has grown from 120,000 under Tory, Tony Blair to more than 600,000 today. And it's now the biggest political party in Western Europe. The key factor in this growth um, uh, is the dire economic situation that many British millennials find themselves in. And that could apply for Australia too. And I'm waiting for something to happen here. Now, because of the lack of social housing and the absurdly expensive housing markets, again, similar to here, many young people find themselves paying 50% of the income on housing, either for sky-high rents in private accommodation or steep mortgages. So jobs are poorly paid, often based on zero-hour contracts, which which is um, amazing because in, in New Zealand they beat that zero-hour contracts and they had a fantastic win couple of years ago. And because of the privatization of utilities, charges for gas and water, it, it, 
impoverishes people. They can't just live on this this kind of roller coaster life and uncertainty and and limited income. So the labor right has also lost control over the national disciplinary committees and thousands of left-wing members in the bid to undermine Corbyn. Um, you know, the, I guess they were used to purge the right wing um, from these committees. And it suffered a further loss in the resignation of Ian McNichol and Blairite uh, leaning general secretary. But the right wing is hanging on uh, tenaciously. Now, so it's it's an interesting observation and uh, analysis by um, Phil Hurst. So if you want to read more of it, um, get a get a copy of Green Love Weekly. Mm. But before we we wrap up soon, I want to again uh, put forward the. Um, issue of um, subscribing to 3CR. Um, we had a, a great interview with Dick earlier on about the women's strike in uh, Spain. Uh, if you like that interview, and we'll have uh, more interviews like that coming on to the program, um, do donate to this specific program. Of course, this is um, Green Left Weekly Radio or Friday Breakfast, if you want to call it either. It doesn't matter. Um, please feel free to ring. The number to ring is 94198377. Of course, you can subscribe over the web. Just go to 3cr.org.au and follow the prompts to um, subscribe. Um, it's your subscription that keeps this um, and donation. keeps the um, station uh, on air. Important alternative media, given the sort of rubbish we get on uh, conservative media uh, or general media, actually, including the ABC. And we, we cannot forget... Um, the journalist who was uh, disciplined over uh, by Tur- Malcolm Turnbull indire- indirectly, and uh, I think you all know what I'm talking about, um, an economic figure that she stated had to be withdrawn. Um, we in, in 3CR don't do things like that. We talk about the reality, what really happens on the ground, and what impacts in people's lives and we certainly put on advertisements for community events and, and we have multilingual programs here so please let me encourage you or inspire you if i can to um, become subscribers and every cent is spent wisely at 3cr thank you for listening and we are about to wrap up jacob um i think we still have two minutes for a quick news article is there anything <laughs> you want to do something else um is there any because we we can't just go play the outro. We still have probably at least two minutes to talk about something. So there's got to be something. Yes, 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 yes. That's, that's a really, really, really good article. Um, I encourage people to to at least go online and look up this um, uh, the, the article. Actually, there are two articles. One is a letter from Behruz Bushani, who's the journalist from um, Kurdistan and uh, Iranian Kurdish uh, person and he's written um, an article about um, his view on what's the status of of, of um, refugees in um, um, Manus and the other article uh, that I actually um, stole off um, renegade economist is for Carl Fitzgerald he runs a program in 3CR and he's interviewed the um, renegade economist by the name of Michael West, and he's been independent investigate, in, investigative journalist uh, for a long economist for a long time, and he's absolutely slammed the transurban and western tunnel 
um, deal that's about to happen. And it's amazing to read it. I think it's one thing listening to it. But if you get to listen to it on 3CI, it's Renegade Economist. But if you want to read the details on paper, to get a copy of Green, Green Life Weekly. Yep. All right. Anyway, that, thanks for that, um, Lali. Um, I think it's the end of the program now. I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Um, I'd like to thank our um, Dick Nichols for being able to do the interview with us. Um, and um, stay tuned for next week on 7am on Friday. And BZE is about to begin.